I just wanted to give you this letter. I'll leave now. Dear neighbor. <laughs> this is going to be a mailbag episode. I am so excited that I have enough correspondence these days to do a mailbag episode. Like, am I famous now? Pretty sure I'm famous. Uh, I'm going to start with a lovely, another lovely email from Anna. Anna tells me that she just found a copy of Faze Wiki's The Liar in the Pawn Shop in a secondhand bookshop in Victoria, British Columbia. That seems totally crazy to me. How has that book got all the way to Canada? It's not as if you can find it anywhere in a secondhand bookshop here. I only found it because I was wandering randomly around the um, University of Melbourne library and it kind of jumped out at me. I really hope you like it, Anna. It's it's pretty specifically Australian. I, I don't know. Like You might find it a bit insular, but... I think you, I think the Les Murray essay is a good one to start with because even though she's talking about a very specifically Australian poet, I think the argument that she's making about impenetrability and um, not feeling welcome in certain poems is one that you can apply to pretty much anything. So yeah, hope you like it. In that email, Anna sent me a poem that absolutely floored me. I have been away, I've been traveling, so I didn't actually sit down and read it until today. It's a poem called You Must Believe in Spring, which is named after the Bill Evans album. If you've never listened to that album, even if you don't like jazz, I just, yeah, that, that was the album that, that converted me, essentially. I can't recommend it highly enough. It's It's so heartbreakingly beautiful. But yeah, Anna sent me that poem because I also wrote a poem called You Must Believe in Spring, named very much named after the album, obviously. It's, it's a heartbreaking album. It's dedicated to Bill Evans' partner, Elaine Schultz, and his brother, Harry, both of whom had committed suicide in the years leading up to the album's creation. And so the title alone, you know, You Must Believe in Spring, has always just seemed so uh, impossibly heartbreaking to me. And I'm not at all surprised that there is another poem that's used that same title. So this is a poem by Jan Zwicky. The Zwickys continue to dominate. Uh, I love it. And yeah, Jan Zwicky's poem, You Must Believe in Spring, starts like this. It's, it's a list poem because it is the garden, what is left to us, because silence is not silence without sound, because you have let the cat out and then in, and then 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 out and then in, enough, because otherwise their precision at the blue line would mean nothing. I was kind of unsure at this point. I, I'm a little bit suspicious of a list poem, particularly if it's an imperative sort of style like I'm thinking of um Dorian Lowe's anti-lamentation as well like they're very comforting but they can be a bit I don't know I can stray a bit close to that whole roomy yoga poem thing um so I was a little bit unsure but as I read on uh and got further 
towards the end of the poem, Janzwicky writes this. Because the wren's voice is moss in sunlight, because it is a stream in sunlight over stones, because Beethoven titled the sonata. I mean, would Bill Evans and Frank Morgan lie to you? Because even sorrow has a source. For though it cannot fly, the heart is an excellent clamberer. So Bill Evans survived those two suicides, but only just. He was a drug addict, and uh, that's, that's essentially how he died. And... That line, would Bill Evans and Frank Morgan lie to you? I, yeah, I really, really got me. It really, really got me, Anna. Um, yeah, I, I, I just don't know where people get that kind of strength from to just keep making in the, in the wake of, of experiences like that. That's kind of a heavy way to start the podcast, isn't it? Gosh, should have had a content warning or something. Jesus Christ. Um, let's let's move out of that uh, slightly heavy subject matter. Uh, Anna was asking me about that poem, You Must Believe in Spring, that I wrote because it uses a technique that I have realized is actually pretty divisive. And that is... The use of, I guess, what I'll call indentation or spacing, spaced out lines, the gaps, I mean, you know, the gaps between words in poems. I use this a lot in the past, and I am a bit more circumspect about using it now. I have mixed feelings about it now. I was talking to Anna about this and explaining that I I once had to format a poem by quite famous Australian poet who used this technique his lines were um, all spread out in all different all different uses of indentation and I had to format it for a website and I know enough HTML to be dangerous but I could not get this poem to sit right on the page no matter how many break tags I used I just could not get it to sit right on the page and and the editor I was working for was um you know I was like look it's it's pretty close like can we just leave it there and she was like oh but he'll probably be quite upset if um you know if if that word isn't sitting exactly under the other word the way that it is on the page and I was like but it's not going to show up the same way in different people's browsers and on different screens and when people look at it on the phone it's going to be different (laughs) And it was so frustrating. And at the end of that experience, I just thought, there's not even any reason for him to do this. Like, I'm wasting all this time and this is not supporting the poem. The strategy that he's using of of spreading the words out in this way, there's no reason for it. Or there was no reason for it that I could see at that time. This This was years and years ago and I don't really remember the poem at all. Um, the thing with this, the reason it's, it's divisive is like so many things in poetry is because it's so often done really poorly and arguably I've only ever done it poorly. The reasons that 
I did it in the past were for things like I'm trying to create a shape that suggests something of the subject matter. So for kind of like a concrete poem style thing. Um, sometimes it's just to create a bit of time or a breath between a line or a phrase. Or sometimes just in place of punctuation that I felt like in that particular case I didn't want to use. I think it can end up just being merely decorative though. I think it can just be there sometimes to just distract from the fact that the poem is actually kind of boring. And I think that you wouldn't have to go far to find poets who would say that is the only reason people ever use it. It is only ever decorative. It never adds anything to the poem. Like, I hear you guys. I know you're out there. I know that that's what you're thinking. The main poet I can point to who is in total command of this technique, though, is the Adelaide poet Ken Bolton. Pick up any book of his and you will feel the lines moving in this totally relaxed way. Using this technique, it just shows you that everything is precisely where it needs to be and it adds to the poem. It supports the poem. And I guess that's that's where I've kind of landed these days is like if it's a if it's not supporting the poem, if it's risking a distraction, then don't use it. I think to a lot of other people, that would seem like a very conservative stance <laughs> that I've started to take. But for me, at least, I, I, I don't ever want to do this stuff unthinkingly um, in the way that I have in the past. I, I want to rely a lot less on instinct and a lot more on um, reason. God. Who do I sound like? Who is this person? <laughs> what is happening to me? Uh, I think I had too much coffee. Um, maybe a slightly more interesting angle on this, rather than trying to make the case for this sort of strategy, is to make the case for only ever sticking to the left-hand margin. I, I would like to hear, poets of the left-hand margin, I love you. What is your case for only ever sticking to the left-hand side? Before I move on, I just want to thank Anna again for her beautiful correspondence. Her emails are just lovely, and I know she takes um, time out of a very busy life to write to me. She's also one of the very few female listeners who writes to me, so if you want to say something and you're of the lady persuasion, I want to hear from you, babe. Dear Sally... In response to your letter of December the 12th, 1966, me favourite colour is blue and me real first name is Richard. Thanks for the snapshot. You're a real cute bird. Love, Ringo. P.S. Forgive the lateness of my reply. Responses to episode 209. We've got a big response this episode, which I called Funny Ha Ha. Uh, most people seem to really like it, which was just lovely. Like, thanks... Thank you for telling me. I never know. I'm going to put this one out and be like, was, was I offensive? Pretty sure I will upset this person. Uh, pretty sure that was wrong. <laughs> you know, so it's really nice to hear. Um, it's really nice to hear from all of you. And as I say, broadly positive response, but it did raise a few questions. And I am keen to set the record straight in a few areas because, like I said at the start, I was trying to give something of a history lesson in that episode about 
where Australian poetry started, what it went through, and where it ended up. And I probably bit off a bit more than I could chew, if I'm really honest. So I did hear from Wallace, who got in touch, and he was querying the link that I made between Generation of 68 Poets and the New York School. And what he said about that was, I don't think it captures the wide variety of sources and influences that Australian poets were responding to. If anything, the New York School was so idiosyncratically American, I doubt that it was a major influence at all, especially compared with the beat poets and more broadly, the San Francisco School. So I was referencing um, John Tranter's anthology, The New Australian Poetry, which was reviewed by Thomas Shapcott, And Shapcott said that that anthology was something of a turning point. That basically was the generation of 68. And Wallace sent me an article by John Tranter where he talks about what he calls this tradition that had a great deal of influence on the writing of the late 1960s. And he lists Jack Kerouac, Gary Snyder, and Philip Whalen. And he also references Tang Dynasty poets and some Japanese verse. So, yeah, we're getting into categories here. In a recent Slee Ricketts episode, Matthew and Austin Allen really expertly unpacked this truism that most movements, most of these movements are created by critics and most poets reject these labels. So we know that, we're taking that as a given. But if we are going to use these categories just for a moment, we know that Kerouac is a beat poet, so not New York school. Uh, Gary Snyder was also associated with the Beats. I didn't actually realize that until I looked it up. He was also associated with the San Francisco Renaissance. And Philip Whalen, also a San Francisco Renaissance man. So I'm really glad that Wallace has kind of um, prompted me to complicate this a bit because, of course, it's just that thing, right? You just get sucked into that New York tractor beam and it's all you could think about. But there were very definitely other influences. Um, When I was reflecting on this, I was also thinking about Robert Adamson's poem for Joanne Kiger. He wrote a couple of poems for her. Uh, One of them is called Bellinus Bay, an ode, which I've always really loved. That was many, many years later. He wrote those in, I think, around 2007. But my sense of those poems is that they reflect a longer link between Adamson and Kiger. And Joanne Kiger is... A California poet. So again, not New York school. So already we have plenty of material to pretty seriously undermine the link I was drawing. And Wallace also adds that the New American Poetry, the Donald Hall anthology, which is cited by Tranter in his introduction to the New Australian Poetry, was probably one of the strongest influences on the generation of 68 poets, and it only had a few New York school poets. So I very definitely overstated that influence there. It's it's more complicated. It's much more nuanced than that. And thanks again to Wallace for sending me through a fantastic article that I'm so excited about by Brendan Casey. Brendan's written an essay in the latest issue of Cordite, which is titled, and I, I got such a thrill when I saw this, it's titled Essential Gossip. It's a huge huge essay it's pages and pages long Um, and my sense of it is that it is based on 
a lecture that he gave in the course that I did with him last year, which was also titled Essential Gossip. And basically what Brendan is doing here is he's he's trying to situate Australian poetry within this American network. And he talks specifically about visits to Australia by poets like Allen Ginsberg, beat poet, Robert Duncan, who is, again, a San Francisco poet, a Black Mountain School guy, and Denise Levitov, who is associated with the Black Mountain Poets as well. When I did this course with Brendan, which looked at all the links between Australian literature over the years and outside influences, visiting writers, the lecture in that course that was totally world-changing to me was this one called Essential Gossip. And so now all that information is available in the essay. If you don't have time to read it all, I would say skip to page seven, where Brendan talks about Chris Hemsley, Australian poet and longtime uh, proprietor of Collected Works Bookshop, sadly now moved on from the Nicholas Building. But Chris was interviewed by Tim Wright. And in that interview, he talks about Robert Duncan's visit to Australia. So this is quoting Chris Hemsley now. Duncan felt that a lot of the literary history that he was interested in, involved in, was essential gossip. And I believe the same thing. You carry the history with you. It is this thing of this synchronicity, this simultaneity, knowing what has been. Brendan sums it up this way. He says, essential gossip means to speak about the entire canon in a collegiate, personally invested mode. To map this relationship visually would require picturing a poetic community as a kind of family tree of proliferating connections. Yet recognizing history as essential gossip also means adding your own name to one of the lower branches. I think this is an incredible way to think about poetry history. And look, for for a couple of years now, I have been trying to not gossip at all. (laughs) It's very hard to do, but I've been trying to um, make that make that something like to not talk about people who aren't in the room it's very very difficult and it kind of makes me uh even more boring than i already am and probably a bit of a prude and definitely out of touch with a lot of stuff particularly poetry stuff like i think i've shared before like i i get into these conversations sometimes at at parties or book launches where somebody will say oh well of course you know about so and so and i'll be like "Mm, yep uh sorry what are you referring to? Because <laughs> I just don't, I don't read the trades. I don't follow what's going on. Um, and I feel like overall gossip can be like quite a damaging thing. You know, there's, there's reasons why I don't do it. I've really gotten myself and other people into some pretty hot water in the past and I don't want to do that again. But this idea of essential gossip this thing about adding your name to one of the branches of a poetry family tree, speaking about the canon in a personally invested mode, these were mind-blowing ideas to me. Because I think I said this in my uh, 200th episode, like I always saw it as like there's the canon, there's the history, there's the lineage, there's the people who did the thing and will continue to do the thing, and there's me. And I am somewhere else 
doing something else and I am not included. And then when Brendan gave this lecture, I my mind changed on that. I thought, I'm the one who's excluded myself from that. And, you know, I, d- I do know these people. Like, I know Tim. I, I kind of know Chris a little bit. Like, it's not that many hops back to Robert Duncan and then back to the New York school and then we're all just like one big dysfunctional family. So, yeah, that that is an idea that I really, really love. And it's kind of my answer to another query that, that Wallace raised, which was just around this thing of like, why is it so important to identify a particularly Australian poetry gene? He was asking me, what is it, why is it important to me to to figure out what is this distinctive Australian voice? And I think the answer is, I am trying to locate myself. I am constantly being pulled back, seduced by contemporary American poetry and swearing off it and then readmitting it back into my life. And and that that influence is so huge, not just on poetry, but on everything you know the books I read the tv I watch the movies I love and for a long time I just felt like whatever that Australian thing is it was like very uncool um, not particularly legitimate and not really something that I could or even should be interested in but lately my mind has started to change on that and I want to find what that thing is and I want to return to it even though it is tricky and there is a lot of difficulty in in thinking about this country and in trying to make art in this country um, I want to know as much as I can about who came before me what their sensibilities were who their influences were and and why they were doing what they were doing but of course, I, I do appreciate that this is a very fraught and probably to, to a large degree kind of pointless exercise trying to identify something as Australian and particularly to pull out something like, oh, there's this New York influence or oh, it's the fact that we can be funny about stuff when it's serious, you know, like they're not, um, these are not qualities that are exclusive to us. Again, whoever us is, like it all just, it all just falls apart in your hands as you start talking about this kind of stuff. But um, yeah, I think it is because I spend, I spend so much time like talking with and thinking about poets from other traditions I end up looking back at myself and going, okay, well, how am I different? Like, what, what is it that's important to me that I need to keep? Because the danger is that you just hand it all over, trying to fit in, you know. Dear life in these United States, a funny thing happened to me. Oh. Use a pen, Sideshow Bob. This brings me to a wonderful, cheeky, very cheeky, and very thought-provoking email from Elijah, Elijah Blumoff, the host of Versecraft, a podcast from which I am learning a great deal 
and I now think I can follow most of what is being said there, which is quite exciting. Um, Elijah wrote to me about episode 209 as well, and he had this to say. Given that this comic streak is something you prize as essential to your tradition, I wonder, do you see any place for authentic sternness and grandness in contemporary Australian poetry? I'm already laughing. (laughs) And if so, what do you think that would look like? Could such a poetry be truly Australian or would it smack too much of Anglo worship? Would one immediately be condemned as putting tickets on oneself and suffer immediate tall poppy syndrome? Elijah, you are deep in ratbag territory here. He goes on to say, While I agree with you that ironic and comedic poetry can be powerful and of high quality, I fear that a poetic tradition that refuses to take itself seriously will have trouble producing achievements of the very highest ambition. Then again, I'm grievously ignorant of the Australian tradition, so I have no real idea what's out there. The one Aussie poet I'm somewhat familiar with is Hope, A.D. Hope. Aside from Hope, are there any modernish Australian poets you would recommend who are accomplished in traditional forms and somewhat philosophical in their bent? Well, (laughs) okay, first of all, like, I really, it's just so important that you stop reading A.D. Hope. Oh my God, please don't read any more A.D. Hope, Elijah. Like, I mean... I'll, I'll send you a poem a day if that's what it takes. Just don't read any more A.D. Hope. Um, yeah. Before I make my own recommendations, and I mean, look, you read A.D. Hope if you want to. If you get something out of him, that's great. Good. Um, before I make a recommendation, this thing of, of taking oneself seriously, I, I, d- I definitely um, have led you astray if I've made it seem like Australian poetry refuses to take itself seriously. Like, just look at the work of somebody like John Kinsella. He's just put out the first volume of his collected co- collected poems, and I think it is somewhere in the region of a thousand pages. Like, he's a heavy, heavy hitter in Australian poetry, and he's exceptionally serious. So, yeah. We, it's not that Australian poets refuse to take themselves seriously. There are many Australian poets who take themselves extremely seriously. I am more of the ratbag school, and so I tend to gravitate toward other ratbags, which is why you probably shouldn't listen to me too closely. But I, I will make a recommendation for you. But before I do, um, yeah, this this kind of got me, this, this thing of like, can we – if we don't take ourselves seriously, can we produce achievements of, can we produce like great artistic achievements? And I was kind of like, well, hang on a second. I think we can. I think we definitely can. We can be rat bags who are great artists. And um, uh, the place we were staying at while I was away, I came across a copy of John Olson's diaries. Very easy to read collection of diary entries spanning maybe 30, 40 years or something. John Olson, the well-known Australian painter. And I was looking at this and thinking about Elijah's uh, comment on seriousness because John Olson painted one of my favourite paintings, Five Bells, which is, which is in response to Sless's poem. 
And actually, Elijah, that might be a poem that you would actually get quite a bit out of. I, I said a couple of episodes ago that Les Murray said it, it had never been topped. That might be going a little bit too far, but I think it's, it's pretty up there. John Olson painted this absolutely stunning painting called Five Bells. And then 10 years later, he was commissioned to paint a mural in the Sydney Opera House, which is called Salute to Five Bells. And his diary entry from around that time is really, really instructive when it comes to this thing of seriousness, this question of seriousness. So this is 19th of April, I think this is 1973. John Olson writes, A good day's work. We arrive late in the afternoon so that we won't be subject to so much heckling from workmen. They have really given me a rough time. Even when I've been working, they have simply walked right up to me and said, Hey, sport, what does it mean? And the old tedious line, a child of five could do that. Or worse still, there will be a public inquiry about this. All happening, I'll have you know, while the mural is unfinished. I mean, that's, that's the 1970s. It's, it's, it's a while back now. But I don't know if the attitude is, is so, so different 50 years on. We could argue that point to the cows come home. Let's not get too distracted by it. But I, I wondered, reading that, I thought, well, maybe this is where the humour comes in, this sense that you can't be seen to be trying too hard because to try too hard is sort of ridiculous and you will literally get heckled for, for seeming too serious. Um, in another entry, John Olson said, play first and if it becomes interesting enough, it may be art. And I thought, well, look, you know, if that approach can lead to a piece like Five Bells, then that's good enough for me. I'm, I'm going to remain in the Ratbag School and I'm going to continue to play. And I, I, may never <laughs> I may never write anything of, um, of great worth. <laughs> I, I, I have never even thought about that, though. Like, I've never thought about my work outlasting me or like legacy or anything like that I just I can honestly say that that doesn't it doesn't really cross my mind I mean look I'd like I'd like for someone maybe I don't know like I can't even talk about I just feel ridiculous talking about it (laughs) it's like okay if if I die tomorrow and then somebody finds a copy of, of my chapbook and is like, oh, it's, you know, kind of, I feel a bit less alone there. Um, that's nice. That was a nice poem. Like, that's, that's enough. That's okay. <laughs> I don't, I just don't have this ambition. I don't. I, maybe I should. I don't know. I don't think it's something you can like retrofit onto your personality. Um, yeah. Play first. If it becomes interesting enough, it may be art. I think the government has better things to do than to read my mail. Most people write letters to movie stars. The Simpson guy writes to movies. Dear Die Hard, you rock. Especially when that guy was on the roof. P.S. Do you know Mad Max? So my recommendation for you, Elijah, more seriously, is the poet Gwen Harwood. So she's modern-ish. She only died in 1995. 
She was extremely accomplished in traditional forms. As you put it, she was somewhat philosophical in her bent. Um, I'm going to link you a talk by my mentor, Bonnie Cassidy, about her poem, Barn Owl, and also Bonnie's reading of Barn Owl. I mentioned in the park last episode, um, which is one of hers, Wallace reminded me also that that poem, he was sort of saying that it's not, it's not really breaking away in the way that I was trying to argue, um, but that it fits within, as he put it, the parameters of the movement in British poetry. The only poet that I really know from the movement is Larkin. But yeah, Gwen Harwood would be my pick for you. And the poem, The Barn Owl, is really, really stunning and and moving and, and quite scary, actually. I hope you will like it. I really hope you will like it, Elijah. I don't I don't know because I think I think your standards are, are quite high and rightly so. But um yeah, I think you'll like it. I'm not gonna read that one. I'm gonna read this other one that Wallace sent me, which is Gwen Harwood's own reply to her poem In the Park. So I read that last episode. I liked it. I mean this is a good comment on legacy too, actually. This is from Later Texts. She sits in the park, wishing she'd never written about that dowdy housewife and her brood. Better the memoirs of a mad sex kitten, or a high-minded ode to motherhood, in common metre, with a grand doxology. They have eaten me alive. Did she write that? The sonnet nestles in a new anthology, safe in its basket as a favoured cat. She sits a while in flickering light, rehearsing the family's birthdays. Stop, you bloody fool. A young house father with a pram is cursing a child who's pushed another in the pool. She helps him calm them. Eating you alive? Look at me. I've lived through it. You'll survive. Hi, you've reached the Corey hotline. 4.95 a minute. Here are some words that rhyme with Corey. Glory. Story, allegory. Rap bags. Rap bags, a lot of you. And speaking of, I did have an email from Matt who said on episode 209, just listen to the new show and I agree, poetry needs to have some humor for the simple fact that poetry takes itself too seriously. Poets themselves are so afraid of looking stupid or sounding stupid, it's like hanging out with a bunch of self-conscious smart kids backstage at a spelling bee. Sometimes it is like that. Yes, it's true. It's true. But also, I am a self-conscious smart kid and I really like being backstage. All right, a couple of last little notes here. First of all, just a little shout out to Aaron from my free verse class that I was in last year. He sent me through a poem that he wrote in another workshop that he has realized is very likely influenced by John Forbes' Speed, a pastoral I love that that poem is just out there circulating and doing things to people. It it just brings me so much joy. Uh, thanks, Aaron. Thanks for sharing it. Thanks for listening. I have a question just for all of you, everybody listening. I have been prompted to think about episode 169, to which I gave the very clickbaity title, no one missed poetry readings. I put that one out in, I think, about May 2022. And at that point, Melbourne was kind of waking up again and we were 
starting to have readings and we're now at a point where I feel like most of the readings that we had are back up and running. I should mention at this point too, I think this episode will go out in time. Uh, Friday 24th of February, Sick Leave is doing a very interesting looking thing at Collingwood Neighbourhood House. I can't go because of a bloody work thing, which is killing me. I don't even have a real job and I have a work thing on a Friday night. What the hell? Uh, I hope it's really fun. I do genuinely feel like I'm going to miss out on something, which I think is the mark of a truly great reading series. But what I've been wondering, thinking back to this episode about poetry readings and my takes on what we should try to keep and maybe what we should move away from as we start them up again. I've been wondering, like, what has your experience been? Have you been to a reading or two over the last year uh, or more? And what are you seeing that's changed? And do you think there has been any change or has it all just snapped back to how it used to be? Because I'd, I'd really love to keep thinking through this because, yeah, it's kind of a... I guess an ex-producer now. Uh, yeah, there's a lot that I miss and there's a lot that I still think about and I think there's still a lot to be unpacked. So yeah, just love to hear any thoughts you have about any poetry reading experiences you've had recently, good, bad or indifferent. To finish off, because I did catch a plane, I did allow myself the Margot Robbie issue of Vanity Fair And let's face it, Vanity Fair is where I get the majority of my poetry news. I'm very bad at reading journals and everything else. But uh, I look, I don't even need to because Vanity Fair has it all. So the book section in the vanities area of the magazine has, what do we got here? Like 12 book recommendations. And of those 12, two of them, two whole recommendations are poetry collections. Well, sort of, kind of poetry collections. So alongside uh, books like, what do we got here? How Far the Light Reaches, A Life in Ten Sea Creatures by Sabrina Imbler. Okay, that sounds weird. Um, A Private Spy, The Letters of John Le Carre. That, that sounds good. That sounds gossipy. And Biography of Mondrian. Oh, and They're Going to Love You. Apparently this this is like this novel about ballet dancers. Apparently it's really good. I have it on good authority. I probably am not going to read it, but I hear that it's good. Alongside all those, we have one true poetry recommendation, the subtitle of which is Ars Poetica. Very nice. So this is a recommendation for Weaving Sundown in a Scarlet Light, which is by Joy Harjo. And the copy, a little bit of copy here, reads... From the former Poet Laureate of the US, a collection brimming with imagery of Oklahoma, horses, hope. <laughs> imagery of hope. <laughs> cool. <laughs> okay, that, sounds, that sounds fun. I wonder what Joy Hajo would have to say <laughs> about that amazing summation of her work. Um, and then also we have here, the little subtitle is Taster Plate and the category is Excerpts. It's this book called Pathetic Literature, which is edited by Eileen Miles. And the copy says, bits and bobs to make you feel excerpted from poems, plays and prose. I, I just don't believe that Eileen Miles actually did that. 
like I feel like their name just got whacked onto something that a team of um, interns put together because that sounds really bad and I just don't I don't know that that Eileen Miles would do that but um, my point here is that guys this is this is a beautiful glossy magazine with like ads for Chanel and um, Jessica Chastain doing Gucci and you know it's it's a Margot Robbie issue like this is this is like this is not backstage at the spelling bee anymore this is glamour you know as, as far as Vanity Fair goes for glamour and, and look poetry is glamorous I'm gonna say it again we're at peak poetry let's enjoy it our time is now we we may be about to be completely corrupted and we may already be completely corrupted but look let's get what we can while we can I saw you last night at the spelling bee I knew right then that it was L-U-V I gotta spell out what you mean to me Cause I can no longer be Silent G. I gotta spell, I gotta spell out I gotta spell out what you mean to me. Man, they're gonna be big. And you stood in their way. No, I didn't. I even came in early and made orange drink. Orange drink? What do you live with your mama? She lives with me. 